Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Emily Givler, who is an amazing individual and someone I first met a year ago up in Park City. She works with Bob Miller, who uh, I've already done an interview with, and she's uh, one of his really good clinicians over there, up in Pennsylvania, I believe. <laughs> and um, interestingly, Bob brought her to the mastermind that we had with a few other people like Tyler LeBaron and Chris Shade and uh, who else, Ben Greenfield. And uh, mostly people I had on the podcast before. Uh, so they, uh, we were there and I hadn't met Emily before, but uh, I think we spoke on the phone. So then we had dinner, like, you know, imagine that. You're gonna have a, all these people together. So you're go, gonna go to dinner. We go to dinner at a restaurant and I was, actually kind of disappointed i said gosh i'm sitting next to emily that wasn't that person i wanted to sit next to so and i'm saying but i'm telling you i'm not embarrassing i'm sure but boy that was like the best thing in the world because you know so i'm making conversation with her and i just learned so much from her and she actually radically changed my health because of that conversation just being able to sit next to her and i asked because i asked her what the question was she, I'm not in the trenches anymore. I don't treat patients. She does. And I'm, I, this is a long intro. <laughs> you, you, you'll be okay. But she teaches and, and sees people every day. So I said, I'm curious. You know, you do these innovative things. What's the best test that you do to get people healthy? And she said, oh, the urinary organic acid test. And I said, what? I mean, I'd hardly ever heard of that test before, let alone used it. And boy, I've done three of them now. I think we might even be showing you some of my results, but it changed my mm -hmm. life. And I've just told me, I mean, that was that dinner that I sat next to Emily was the first time I have not had, I didn't have gluten then, but I'd stopped it formally. I was going to have it for dinner, but I said, no, I, was, I ordered the hamburger on, a, on rice instead of a yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, you know, those special are things for you like that there. So I've not had a microgram of gluten that's coming up on a year now. So, well, it's a little short, maybe 10 months. So, uh, so she changed my life, and I think she can change yours. And what we're going to talk about today, or she's going to enlighten us, is biochemical individuality. So welcome, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for that, that kind introduction. Um, and it's really exciting to hear how impactful that meal was for you, because I think people look at you and I, and they assume that we're doing all the right things, we're in perfect health, and we're all living in this super toxic world. So everyone is being confronted by insult and injury to our bodies every day. Um, so even those of us who are in this field can tweak things based on our biochemistry to make things work better for us. And um, as you mentioned, one of the keys is that there's not one right answer for everybody. We've got to find what makes us unique and find those places where we're a little bit more vulnerable and really support those areas appropriately. Mm -hmm, for sure. And actually that's one of the reasons that uh, captivated your entry into this field is you had your own personal health challenges. That I think conventional medicine just couldn't determine. And like many, so many cases we hear about, it was the person who had the problem had eventually get figured out. So if you want to share that with us and then we can start diving into this biochemical individuality that you can help us understand at a deeper level. Sure. I started with chronic pain and, and pretty excessive fatigue as a teenager. And my parents shipped me from doctor to doctor to doctor. And I had test after test done and really got no answers. It took about five years before I got a fibromyalgia diagnosis, 
which at the time it was really reassuring to know that this wasn't all in my head. Other people felt this way too. But where I got frustrated was the only recommendations that I was given were narcotic painkillers or antidepressants or some combination of the two um, at really excessively high doses. And I was still a teenager. Um, and I decided I wanted to have a liver and kidneys by the time that I was 40. So I did not go down that route, but I really had to carve out my own path to try to regain my health. And I definitely had some missteps along the way. I stopped eating meat and I started eating a lot of spinach and beets and Swiss chard <laughs> and the, reason the, the things that... She's gonna tell us why that's such a problem. <laughs> yep, sounds good, right. I mean, I was eating these three meals a day, seven days a week and just feeling worse and worse and worse. And my rheumatologist had told me to plan on being disabled by the time I was 30. So I was about 20 at the time and I'm thinking, boy, I knew to expect disability, but I didn't think it would happen this fast. Um, and here it turns out that I was really dealing with extremely high levels of oxalates, which are cause crystalline precipitates to form in the muscle and connective tissue, which were causing so much of my pain and depleting my NADPH, which was just zapping my energy. And so I looked like fibromyalgia. And I really think a lot of people who have that label are probably dealing with something similar. But the foods that I was eating, the healthy foods, the spinach and the beets are just sky high in oxalates. So foods that are good and healthy, and I don't want to suggest that no one should eat them. But for me, I was poisoning myself with these healthy foods and um, just absolutely wreaking havoc on my health. My pain level was the lowest my pain level ever got was an eight out of 10. Um, and I can say that now, almost two decades later, it's completely managed with no painkillers, neither over the counter, it's certainly not any type of narcotic painkiller. Um, but there are too many people who are really suffering every day. They think they're doing the right things, on paper they're doing the right things, and what's right for one person may be absolutely, totally wrong for them. And there are some ways that you can figure this out rather than just fumbling through it the way that I did. How did you eventually figure it out? Um, well, the, the piece that made it irrefutable was actually the urine organic acid test. I had, <laughs> I, I had probably told 500 people that their fibromyalgia was probably caused by oxalates and showed them how and worked with them and helped resolve it before I really truly accepted that this was my issue as well. Uh, but it was a combination of the uh, genetic testing um, that I'd done and, and used with my colleague, Bob Miller, uh, combined with the urine organic acid test that showed me this is 100% what is going on in my body and allowed me to take the best action steps uh, to resolve it. Yes, it's such, such a powerful test. You know, it and sure then, is. Yeah, and especially if you don't know what the heck's going on, and I'm sure that's almost uh, the classic person who you consult with now is that mm -hmm. they've been to some really, really good clinicians giving them, you know, solid recommendations, mm -hmm. but it wasn't customized for them. And this testing, the combination of the evaluation of the genetic SNPs and the urine organic acid testing allows you to do just that and know it. You know, one of the things, I mean, the, the, the urine, uh, I mean, the genetic SNPs show me that I never heard of this SNP before, but it's that essentially the equivalent of celiac disease. So that's why I cannot eat gluten in any way, shape or form. 
-hmm. but but the, the other thing I had, I had this same darn oxalate problem too and there's fortunately there's some ways around it but why don't you continue on help us with your journey and we'll we'll go into that in a bit Sure. So I started feeling better when I was uh, out of college. My my wonderful college, Warren Wilson, had an organic vegetarian and vegan cafe on campus. So it made it really easy to eat the healthy foods like spinach. And then, you know, leaving school and being a, a poor post-college student, my organic vegetable budget was not quite the same. So by budgetary defaults, I started eating fewer and fewer of those veggies and my pain started improving and I did not put one and one together at the time. I thought, okay, these other things that I'm doing are really starting to work. Uh, but eventually with combining the genetics and the oat test, I really had, had my answer and was able to take my health to the next level. And this is something that I see over and over again with both the clients that I work with and the clinicians that I consult with as well. Um, there's not one right answer. As clinicians, we tend to get into the habit of wanting to put people on a protocol. We find something that works and we push it. And it may work for a lot of people, but there are always gonna be people who, be people who slip through the cracks uh, because there are differences in our biochemistry, whether it's differences because of genetic predispositions that may make us metabolize things like oxalates or histamine or glutamate differently than the average person, or because of particular environmental insults that we're exposed to either because of our occupation or because of our geography. Um, those things kind of pile up and may make us fall outside of that normal box. So if we can use the genetics as kind of the, the framework around which we build our protocols and then use functional testing like the urine organic acid testing, we can more precisely target what types of dietary choices or nutritional supplementational interventions, or in some cases, lifestyle changes we need to implement to really propel us towards health. I mean, there's nothing that's more frustrating than, you know, talking to someone who is so excited. They went gluten-free and it completely changed their lives. They lost 30 pounds, their energy went through the roof, their mental clarity's never been better, they're sleeping great, and they noticed it right away. So you give up gluten and you feel worse and you feel more sluggish and you can't get out of bed and you lose all of your drive and your brain fog gets worse. And you think, but so-and-so told me that this was the, the magic bullet for them. There's not one right answer for everybody. We're, especially as Americans, a lot of us are mutts, so our genetics have come from a lot of different places. So there may not be one perfect answer. Um, and it can get really tricky when we throw in Dr. Google on top of it. The internet is wonderful. It gives us a tremendous amount of health advice, but it's important to remember that, again, what's right for one person may not be right for you. So uh, I think histamine foods are a really good example. Um, we can read volumes about how good fermented foods are for our gut and probiotics are for our gut uh, and kefir and kombucha and how we should be eating these things every day. But if you can't clear your histamine or if you're dealing with excessive mast cell activation and you bring these foods into your diet, you may set off a catastrophic cascade of events and make your symptoms exponentially worse. And too often then you're gonna to be told, oh, you're just having die off, just keep going, you're just not doing enough of it, when actually you may be making yourself sicker and sicker. So you know, getting the, the right guidance with the right functional testing can really make a huge difference in 
and people getting on the right plan for themselves. Oh, great. You know, I, I was thinking about, um, you have another health challenge aside from the oxalate sensitivity is, and I was surprised that you found the O test or the organic acid testing, that's the acronym mm -hmm. for O test, uh, mm -hmm. to be the useful. I thought that, that you did, did the 23andMe and genetic testing for the SNPs and found that you had the most common genetic disease in the world. I do. It's G6PD insufficiency. And so this is where things get complicated. Very few of us are dealing with just one thing. And so we have to see where these patterns of weakness kind of pile up. For, for, so for your listeners who aren't familiar, uh, G6PD is the most common enzyme insufficiency in the world. Um, and it can result in a significant loss of NADPH. So that can increase inflammation in the body and it can decrease mitochondrial function. So that piled on top of my genetic predispositions to overabsorb oxalates, which will also deplete NADPH, really gives me a one-two punch when it comes to energy. Um, and so, uh, you know, you are not the only one who got benefits out of that uh, dinner in Utah. You and I spoke pretty extensively about things that I could do to rebuild my NAD and NADPH levels. And that has really helped me to propel my health to the next level as well. Yeah, NADPH is so magnificent. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but it's mm -hmm. been sort of a, my understanding that it's been an outgrowth of my interest in EMF where replenishing NAD levels are important, but NAD plus is so crucial to maintain health, but NADPH may be equally as important and probably is, and maybe is as important as ATP because you mentioned it lowers inflammation, but it's the, it's the primary source of electrons in your body to donate, to recharge your antioxidants, internal antioxidants, like glutathione, vitamin C, vitamin E. And if you don't have this working, you are, you are, man, it's like almost impossible to get healthy. And you do have to be so rigid, rigid, religious about your health habits. Otherwise you, there's no question you will die prematurely. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's sad because there are some things you can do that are pretty foundational basic and not, ex not that expensive. But the point being is that there's no way you would know this without these two tests, which I think for me, anyone I see that has a chronic complex problem, they're not getting better. I mean, the first step if they haven't done already is to get, do these two tests and then see someone like you. Now you're not the only person out there that can yeah. combine the evaluation test, but you certainly are very adept at interpreting that. And I, and I can't thank you enough for the insights you've helped me with in modifying and transitioning my health. Because, you know, like, as an example, I thought, oh, B vitamins. Oh, they're important. B complex. You know, who needs B vitamins? I mean, I eat healthy. I get them. There's no way I was massively deficient in these B vitamins. So I had to be mm -hmm. deciduous with and, taking specific ones. And, and a specific ones is the key. I was going to say, it's not all B vitamins that you were deficient in, and it's probably not the ones that your listeners are, are anticipating. It wasn't the B12 and the folate. And do you mind if we, we share right. a little bit of yourself? So yeah. for you, the, the, in part, largely because of the diet that you eat, your big issue was B2 insufficiency. <laughs> so few people are thinking about B1, B2, B6, but they are critical. And so for you, for true metabolic flexibility, getting adequate B2 to work with the level of fat that you're eating in your diet was a big piece of it. And interestingly, um, with the gluten, it was not just 
the SNP test that showed it, that was reflected on the organic acid test as well. And it took, what, four months, at least four months being strictly gluten-free for you to get that metabolite back yeah, in line. Because which is a, which is a good, good illustration of the, of the power of these mm -hmm. tests because they reinforce each other. You know, those, the, 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 the organic acid testing will support what the genetic things are, at least give you an idea what the direction is going. Mm -hmm. And the other principle is that it's not going to heal in a week or two. You've got to stick yeah. with this. It takes a while to heal this damage. Mm -hmm. And with the gluten, if we hadn't looked at the genetics and the organic acid test, you probably wouldn't have known that there was a problem because you have those sneaky variants that don't cause gastrointestinal issues. Yeah, I, I had no gluten. symptoms, absolutely mm -hmm. symptom-free, none. Mm -hmm. But your, the organic acid test showed us that had you kept gluten in your diet, you would have been on track for autoimmunity. Whether it was celiac disease or another type of autoimmune condition, that door was wide open. So this is where getting the right testing can close that door and put you on a better path to health. So it's amazing how much insight we can get from looking at the right functional testing. And um, these two are just a, a one-two punch for figuring out is it some inborn issue that you need more of a certain nutrient than someone else? Or is it just poor dietary choices for you? Is it an environmental toxin? When we pair those two things together, so many of those pieces really come to light. Yes, indeed. And uh, I just, I, well, I'm remembered, I just want to insert mm -hmm. a plug for uh, what you and Bob Miller are doing in that, um, you, I think your term is called functional genomics. Is that what you described mm -hmm. it as? Yeah. yeah. So there's you're holding you hold a lot of events and teaching webinars like every two weeks. Uh, so that if you're a clinician or healthcare provider and interested <clears throat> in integrating and learning this material and integrating it to your practice, then you can actually learn it and go to these events and <coughs> how to apply it. And there's going to be one event you're holding for the first. I think it's the first one. A uh, functional genomics out in Colorado. This will be our first uh, environmental and genomics conference. Bio, so we'll be bio, looking. That's what it is, environmental genomics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that'll be in September, September in Denver, Colorado. Um, and that one is for clinicians. It's not for the, the right. general public. It's going to be some, some pretty intensive conversations. And you will be joining us as a speaker yeah. there. And Very um, so Bob Miller and myself will be hosting and teaching a lot of the weekend, but we have wonderful guests. Yourself, Dr. Neil Nathan will be our keynote speaker. We're, we're thrilled to have him. Uh, Dr. Jill Carnahan will be joining us. There's a, a growing list of speakers. We're really excited about uh, this one. And we are so excited at the number of practitioners who are realizing how powerful this approach can be and bringing it into their own practices as well. So we have the September conference, we have an online training program available for clinicians as well, who, if you're so excited about this and don't wanna wait until September, um, and then we do uh, host the biweekly webinars as well, because this is such an exciting field and there are so many people who this approach can be beneficial for. We work with a lot of individuals with chronic Lyme disease who have explored virtually every option and keep running into the same walls. And then when we look at their genetics and their oat testing, we find stones that haven't been turned over and new avenues and answers as to why they couldn't 
either continue their killing protocols or really eradicate the pathogens, and they're actually able to get better. Um, but we see this with the autistic community. We see it with people with chronic gastrointestinal issues uh, and with, with mental health issues as well. So um, this is an approach that applies kind of across the board, but really shines with these chronic complex cases where people are falling outside of the, the normal protocols or the normal protocols are not um, getting them the results that they want to see. Yeah, and these normal protocols can frequently be solid, adv gen generic advice, not customized. So mm -hmm. like your example of eating all these healthy organic vegetables and it was decimating yeah. your, mm -hmm. your health and radically increasing your pain because of the oxalate concentration. So yeah, all I can say is thank, Thank goodness they were organic. I mean, if I had thrown glyphosate-covered vegetables on top of that, then I really would have been in trouble. Um, so at least I had the organic piece right. That's As much as there's not one right answer for everyone as far as diet or supplementation, there's definitely a wrong answer for everyone. Yes. I mean, I think we could probably agree that yeah, yeah, standard yeah. American diet, there's no one that that's right for. <laughs> so. Yeah, which, which is loaded with glyphosate. And we, as mm -hmm. we're today uh, this weekend we were together at a event in an autism event in Atlanta uh, mm -hmm. where Stephanie Seneff was speaking and I had a chance to interview her out there and uh, beyond uh, it was it was a really enlightening conversation but the point being is that with the we know non-organic food is loaded with glyphosate but it tends to be more concentrated in connected tissue why because it's connected tissue has a very high concentration of glycine and glyphosate has glycine as an integral component of its molecule. So the glycine gets concentrated there. So if you're eating, point being here is if you're eating bone broth or collagen, and the vast majority, maybe even significantly more than the vast majority, I believe, is not organic. And so if you're eating these things, and we, I think we all benefit from healthy connective tissue. That's really one of the problems of eating animal protein is we're not eating the connective tissue to balance it out. So if you, if, if you start eating this and it's not organic, you're going to get loaded with glyphosate and that's going to cause massive problems. Now, a question for you, how does glyphosate, I mean, you can measure it directly and that's part of Great Plains. Mm -hmm. The Great Plains does have an assay for that. And actually, I'm in kind of right now in collaborating to confusion between their testing system, Dr. Walsh, or Shaw, rather, sorry, and uh, John Fagan, who runs the HRL laboratory to see, because mm -hmm. they have different results. But I'm wondering, how does it, aside from testing it directly, does it show up in the oat test at all when you have glyphosate exposure? Um, it, it doesn't show up directly there. I mean, with Great Plains, you can do the, the urine metabolites for glyphosate, as you mentioned. But there, we can see patterns when there is high level of glyphosate exposure. So glyphosate's very disruptive for the gut microbiome, but it doesn't kill all species uniformly. Mm -hmm. um, so if there are elevations in clostridial species and yeast and depleted beneficial bacteria, that is one pattern that you can see with glyphosate exposure because it'll kill the lactobacilli and the bifidobacterium and leave some of the more opportunistic organisms uh, which will make you more vulnerable to the lipopolysaccharides. Um, so that's one pattern that you can see on the urine organic acid test. Um, glyphosate also breaks down into oxalate. So for some people who are not dealing with a genetic predisposition, but are dealing with a secondary hyperoxaluria, um, then you may, that may be a result of glyphosate as well. 
if we see a lot of mineral depletions, uh, glyphosate's a mineral chelator. So there again, that may be an indicator that there are some problems. And high succinate on the oat test also can be an indicator because succinate and glycine combine to uh, move things into the heme pathway. So without the glycine, if it's being disrupted by glyphosate, um, that level may be elevated. So if you're seeing high oxalates and high succinate, high clostridia, low good bacteria, I would start looking for glyphosate exposure. Good, good. So any other, I, I thought it would be helpful if we went over some of my tests to see people, given a sort of a representative example, and I, I don't mind sharing my, my test results publicly. Okay. There we go. All right, so this is your most recent organic acid test. So let me bring up the very first one. Okay. All right, so you were right, it was August. Yeah. So this was our very first organic acid test, and... You, you me... thought, how could you be alive? <laughs> oh, I, 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 don't, I don't know that that was exactly the way that I put it, <laughs> but... Was this anywhere close to what you were expecting? No, when? I was. I was shocked. I basically. I think. I think I still am recovering from an injury I had when I fell down when I saw it. Okay. <laughs> so there were there were definitely some things out of line, and if you, you know, the one of the first things that I always tell my clients is, this is at least an explanation for why you're feeling how you're feeling. Sometimes when people see things out of line, they get really upset about it. Yeah, they yeah, may yeah. fall over, head injuries, months to recover. <laughs> but, brain injury, yeah. but if we don't know what's wrong, then we don't know how to bring you back into balance. So I'm a data lover. The more data we can collect, the, the better. So this showed us that your gut was not perhaps in the best uh, of shape, you were maybe overdoing it on your good bacteria. Um, so I think I recommended you slow down on your probiotics. Well, actually, I, I actually had SIBO. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it it did really look that way with the elevations in fourteen and fifteen. So you, now I'm not I'm not a medical doctor, so I can't diagnose. No, I know, I but you can diagnose SIBO. I mean, not formally, but you can get a really. I can't. I can't. But if if you had a medical doctor who was yeah, you could. At it. You don't have to do the breath test and all that other stuff. No, and the breath test can be really rough on people who have full-blown SIBO because you're actively feeding those organisms. So there's a lot of insight that you can get about the gut from a urine test, which surprises a lot of people. It doesn't have to be uh, yeah, through stool all the time. Interestingly, I'm a huge fan of molecular hydrogen, and mm -hmm. uh, one of the downsides of that is that that may be the only clinical condition where molecular hydrogen may not be a good idea, or at least yes, challenges because it actually feeds the bad bacteria. Yeah, now it de would depend what type of SIBO you have. There's SIBO C, which is the constipation-driven SIBO, and there's SIBO D, which is more the diarrhea end. And with SIBO C, typically what happens is there's an overgrowth of, of archaea, which feed uh. on hydrogen. So if you're taking that hydrogen, you may cause them to proliferate and they're methane producing organisms. Oh, I did not realize there's a difference between the C and the D. I had the D. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so, so and there can be, and often the D will progress to the C because the, the, um, the overabundant uh, bacteria that cause um, the diarrhea produce hydrogen, which then feed the archaea, which then produce the methane, which then 
cause the constipation. And that's why many people see evolving gastrointestinal issues that start in one way and end up another way. So if you take hydrogen water and you get gassy or bloated or constipated or brain fog, there is a really good chance that there's an overabundance of organisms in the digestive tract. Yeah. And in my, and in my case, the, the therapy was eliminating the fiber. Yeah, the fiber. And, you know, this would be a time that we would say stop probiotics because, and work on the motility of the bowel, regulating that. And I do suspect that having the gluten in the mix was part yeah, of what was compromising the gut here. Now, something like Saccharomyces, Saccharomyces boulardii, would that be mm-hmm. beneficial? It can be, but I, I tend to, in a presentation like this where markers 14 and 15 are both elevated, I would avoid any type of beneficial organism, at least okay. for the time being, until you got those levels a little bit lower. Yeah. Uh, but it, in part, it depends on the motility of the bowel. I mean, our whole premise of this talk is bioindividuality, right? Right, right. So, right. Yeah, there you go. So there's not even one right answer right there. But the other thing that we see on this first page is that phase two of your liver was not keeping up with phase one. That hip rate being elevated really showed us that. Um, You're referring to detoxification phases. Yes. So so important because I mean that's where the real detox is. Almost no one has a problem with phase one. It's always phase two. Yep. So phase one was moving too fast for for phase two. So phase one takes those fat soluble toxins and turns them into intermediary metabolites, which are more toxic than those toxins were when they were sequestered in fat cells where our body was protecting us. So they should move right on to phase two to move into one of our six conjugative pathways of detoxification. So they turn into a water soluble form to leave the body. And when this hip rate is elevated, it's often an indicator that you're getting stuck with those more toxic intermediary metabolites and phase two needs a little bit of assistance. So then as we move on to the second page, this is where we saw- hey, do, you, do you want to go back to the first page? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just so we can see it. So there was our, our first page August. And then the, in August. And then we saw some big flares with that second test in October. A lot of those bacteria really jumped up. This is when you had the full-blown SIBO, and this was actually when you had added that additional fiber. I think it was something like popcorn that you were eating there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know why I ate popcorn. It was healthy organic, of course. But, mm-hmm. uh, forget what um, I was but And, you know, the yeast had jumped up. That phase two was really struggling. I'm not sure if you had been doing any type of killing protocol yet at that point. I, but I, you're, I forget what I was doing, but... I thought I was helping, but I wasn't. So that's why you have to check. You just can't do one test and say, okay, I'm fixed. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to see what happened. I actually got worse. Symptom-wise, I don't think I was doing what that worse, but, but certainly worse on the test. Yeah, definitely worse on the test. But, but I don't think that you had many symptomatic complaints no. uh, about gastrointestinal things from the beginning. No. Okay. So, we're, so we're, let's go to the third one then. Here we go. So this was your test in February, and we see the gut looks so much better. Your good bacteria are back in balance between markers 14 and 15. Still need to work on that phase two. Interesting. And then the big thing that showed up on this test that did not show up beforehand um, was the mold marker, number three, which can be a black mold indicator. And Interesting that that's precisely what I had. Mm-hmm. 
I, um, I had an unknown leak in my laundry room. Uh, what probably was going on for a year or longer. And uh, I mean, some of the wood behind the walls that were taken out was just rotted all the way through. Mm -hmm. So almost had to evacuate my house. Yeah. And sure enough, showed up right, right there on that test. And that was the first time that one was elevated. Yeah. Um, so we can see back in October, that wasn't even on the radar. Yeah. But then as we cleaned up those other pathogens and, and really the mold, even before the metabolite showed up, the exposure to mold may have been part of why there was such a flare in the, the pathogenic organisms in the gut. Mm -hmm. um, so well, toxins are nasty. They really are. So that's something that, you know, we've been talking about for a while. We've been talking about oxalates today and a lot of species of mold are one of the main sources of oxalates in our body. Aspergillus and penicillium in particular will really produce a lot of um, mold in the system as will yeast and certain bacteria as well. Yeah, and that's what was growing in my house. Mm -hmm. Yep, so you're, we can see on this test, your phase two of your liver is doing better and no surprise with all of those pathogenic organisms done. You've remediated your home, so you're taking the right step uh, for that black mold marker. Um, so really from that first test um, with the SIBO to the full-blown SIBO on the second. And so I think that should be a good reminder for people that even if you see an increase, our gut is very dynamic. It's home to over a hundred trillion microorganisms. So that was a step in getting you back into balance. And now we see the, the final test much more balanced. But one thing that has been an issue for both of us as well are the oxalates. Yeah, so me, an it's an interesting story that I want you to expand on because the oxalates can be tested as normal, they still could be a problem. Correct. Yeah. And so we, we often think about this in terms of heavy metal testing. So here we're back to the first test as well. And in this case, we saw an overt elevation. Um, there were oxalates physically leaving your body. The oxalic acid was elevated. But if you are storing oxalates, if they are all aggregated in connective tissue or in the lungs or in the pelvic girdle or in your brain or in your eyes, all of these places that oxalate can go, then they don't necessarily show up in an unprovoked urine test. Just in the same way that if you are doing an unprovoked heavy metal test, you are only seeing what's excreted and not what's being stored. So there are times that the oxalic acid can show up in range or even low when there is truly a high body burden of oxalates. So this is where looking at the bigger picture, is there mold, is there yeast, is there, uh, are there other types of dysbiosis? Um, is, are there genetic predispositions on genes like the AGXT or the GRHPR or the HOGA1. So if you find variants there and you find um, patterns of inflammation and pain presentations going along with it, then you may actually be dealing with retained oxalates. I mean, this is a risk for osteoporosis. It's a risk for iron deficiency anemia because the oxalates will chelate your calcium, they'll chelate your magnesium, they'll chelate your iron, and form these really painful precipitates. Uh, the most 
uh, common form or the one that people are most familiar with are kidney stones because there again, the oxalate's physically leaving your body. Somebody can pick up that stone, put it on a slide, look under a microscope and go, aha, I know what the problem is. You had a kidney stone, but only 0.5% of people who have oxalate issues will actually develop kidney stones. The other 99.5% have issues like myself, where it's a pain presentation, where those oxalates are actually trapped in the body and creating issues. And they're linked with some really serious health conditions, as well as a, a pretty significant amount of chronic pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm so certain there's no doubt in my mind that large numbers of people have this and they have no understanding or idea that this is what's a, playing a major role in their problem. Mm -hmm. And so like myself, they may find themselves doing healthy things that are, are really wrong for them. But there are some really excellent and easy and inexpensive things that you can do if you suspect that oxalates are an issue for you, or if you have testing like this that tells you beyond a shadow of a doubt that yes, there are, that oxalates are a problem. And one of my favorite things to do for oxalates are Epsom salt soaks, because there is a gradient created in the cell between oxalate and sulfate. And for your list, if any of your listeners are not aware, Epsom salts are magnesium sulfate. So when we eat sulfurous foods like broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage and eggs, we have to metabolize that sulfur. It goes through a multi-step process, getting converted into sulfite and then into sulfate eventually if everything goes well. But when you get Epsom, when you use Epsom salts, you're getting sulfate as sulfate. You can absorb it transdermally through a bath or a foot soak uh, and really displace a lot of the oxalates. So many of your listeners probably use Epsom salt soaks for achy muscles and they think, oh, the magnesium is really helping me. And I don't want to discount the role of magnesium. It's really important for that. But that sulfate that the magnesium is bonded to, if there are oxalates, that's the part that's really making the difference with pain. Yes, indeed. And uh, I'm actually going to be installing a float tank to do regular magnesium sulfate baths, which I'm excited about real shortly. I mean, that is, that is hands down one of the most awesome things I think you can do. But if a float tank is not in your budget, <laughs> yeah. then, then just like a little Dollar Tree foot basin, well, maybe not a Dollar Tree one, those are probably contaminated with foot, but just a little yeah. foot basin, <laughs> yeah. a little foot tub, about a half a cup of Epsom salts, distilled water. You know, you don't want to be using water that's full of, of um, chlorine and fluorine yeah. and things like that, fluoride. But, or RO filter would be work, work too. Yeah, absolutely. So clean water, some type of distilled or RO water, Epsom salts, and really let yourself soak. There's other things that you can do, but you know, there, here again, there's not one right answer for everybody. But if you suspect oxalates, the Epsom salts are a pretty safe and gentle and effective way at starting to move those out of your system. So this was your first test. Um, your most recent oxalate test let's see here's sure. the most recent one so here we see a little bit of a shift the oxalates have already come down the glycolytics um, acid it, or the glycolic acid is on the lower side which 
high or low, it, it's going to put oxalates at least on our radar. But this is so far the best one we've seen for you with oxalates, in yeah. part because your gut is so much better than it was the last two tests that we looked at. And yeah. the gut is going to be one of our biggest sources of, of elevated oxalates. Yeah, interesting aside here, I, I don't really have large dietary intakes of oxalates except for fermented beets, which I use as a form of nitrates to increase nitric, nitric oxide. Uh, but the little pearl there that you gave me is that um, I don't really eat much dairy at all, so I take calcium. And the way I get my calcium is by uh, powdering, pulverizing organic eggshells. Uh, and that's a really good source because it's not only has calcium, but it has a variety of other good nutrients in there. So I powder it and I put it with the fermented beets at the same time. So if there's any oxalates in those fermented beets, it's going to bind to the calcium and it won't give me a problem. Yes. If you can put your minerals in your stomach at the same time as those high oxalate foods, then you're just going to bind them up in the digestive tract. The oxalates get into the system through the sulfate uh, transporters, and then they attach to the sulfate receptor sites, which is part of why they're able to get into so many tissues. And um, the we think of, tend to think about absorption as being a function of the small intestine, but our sulfate transporters are all over the colon. So if you can bind up um, the the oxalate and the minerals in the stomach, then they will bypass those transporters in the colon and be excreted in the stool without giving you any difficulty. So bringing in any type of calcium source along with food is a really good idea if you have oxalate issues. And what a different way of thinking about our minerals as binding agents rather than as oh, I need my calcium for my bone density. Giving calcium and binding up the oxalates with it and having it excreted does help our bone density because it eliminates the, the compound that's going to steal the calcium from our bones if it gets into the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just a, a optimal preventive maintenance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So let's... See, what else did we want to talk about on your oat test? Oh, I think it is worth pointing out to people on the very first test how we knew that gluten was an issue. Yeah. So yeah. on this test, independent of SNP, which, I, which essentially definitively assessed it. Mm -hmm. but this, is so, a, this is a metabolic confirmation. Yeah. So it, it tells us not only is the SNP there, your SNPs were homozygous. So we, we didn't really have too much of an expression question. And, and for people who don't know, um, we've got two copies of, of almost all of our, our SNPs or our uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms in our genetics, one from mom, one from dad. And you can have two working copies, one working copy, one less than ideal copy, or two less than ideal copies. So your copies were both less than ideal, um, telling us gluten should strictly be off of the table. And then when we looked at your tryptophan metabolites, the 5-HIAA, which is often associated with serotonin levels, when it is this elevated, it can be an indicator of celiac disease as well. So again, I'm not a doctor. I can't sit here and diagnose you with celiac disease. Why, why, would you, why would you expect that metabolite to be elevated in, in psyllium? Um, it, 
it is in the literature that that you'll see is spiking uh, 5-HIAA when you're burning through your serotonin uh, in celiac disease um, and in carcinoid tumors as well. So there are uh, three possible explanations there, but with looking at you, because we had your genetics, we were able, and because we knew that you had brought in just the tiniest little bit of good quality organic fermented sourdough with that little bit of gluten, it was enough to tell us that the most likely explanation for this metabolite with you is celiac disease. So here again, the combination of the organic acids with the SNP testing uh, was what was able to give us the more definitive answer so that we didn't go, oh my gosh, do you have a tumor? I mean, you certainly want to rule out those significant pathologies sure. as well. Sure, carcinoid, yeah. Not a good, good idea. I, <clears throat> I don't think I'll ever get cancer, though. I'm pretty confident of that. Mm -hmm. Or heart disease. I'll probably die in an accident surfing in Hawaii or something. Or <laughs> but anyway, but this is a good illustration. So mm -hmm. the serotonin is consumed in celiac. It's just a mm -hmm. metabolic observation. Yeah. Okay. And then you see that the, city, the, metabo the uh, metabolite raised because of that. Yeah, so we saw this was the test from August, and then when we looked in October, we saw that metabolite perfectly balanced. So our dinner in Utah was in June, and that was the first point that you, you were officially gluten-free from June. So that's something that is important for people to note, that from June till August, being strictly gluten-free, your body was still reacting to that gluten. Yeah, and it yeah. took until October to get it fully out of your system. It's mm -hmm. a long time. Yeah. So, you know, if you have done your four-week gluten-free trial and you don't feel any different, you may not actually have done it long enough, or there may be other complicating factors sure. uh, going along. And so that's where looking at tests like this can be such a valuable tool. Yeah, especially if you're not getting better. If you're getting better, then you know probably you nailed it. But yeah, not, this is when you need some more advanced diagnostics. Yep, and you need to not give up. And it's so easy for people to get frustrated, especially with something like gluten, because gluten is going to cross the blood-brain barrier. It's gonna the gluteomorphin is just going to light up all the happy places in your brain and tell you, you know what this trial isn't working anyway, just eat a little right. bit of gluten, just a little bit won't hurt you. Well, and, and it might, and it might be hiding in the background, um, wreaking havoc on your uh, sure. immune system and causing dysregulation there. Um, well, let's escape the screen share. Sure. That's good enough for this. Okay. So, yeah, it's a big, it's a, it's a really big deal. There's no question mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, I remember a time when I was in practice probably late 80s, early 90s, where I, where I was confronted with the possibility of, of avoiding gluten and said, I'd rather die. I'd rather die than never have gluten again. You would be in good company. I dread yeah. having to tell people, I really think you should be gluten-free. And I, I always start by telling people, I don't recommend this for everyone. Because I think if people think that, well, my blanket recommendation is go gluten-free, that yeah, yeah. they're going to find every excuse under the sun not to do it. So I love having data in hand, like we did with you, to be able to say, yeah, yeah. no, because of this and because of this, it's got to go. Yeah, yeah. 
Now you can choose to avoid that recommendation, but there's going to be oh. uh, health consequences as a result. Mm -hmm. I mean, then, then at least I have done my job. I have, yeah. I'm an educator and I have put the ball in your court. Yeah. And everyone gets a choice. You know, mm -hmm. everyone, at least now in the 21st century knows that smoking is harmful and will likely kill you prematurely. And mm -hmm. if you choose to smoke, that's your choice. At least it's an informed choice. Absolutely. Most of, most of the decisions we make are not informed. Yeah. So, and with how much information, both good and bad, is out there on the internet now, we can read till we can read all day, every day. But unless we're actually testing ourselves, we don't know whether the advice that we're taking is the right advice for us. And so, so many of your listeners are super health conscious. They're taking a lot of steps. I'd encourage everyone to make sure you're taking the right steps for you. So look at some of these tests that look at your bio-individuality, especially if you are not getting better. If you're spinning your wheels, if you feel like you've plateaued for your health, with your health, or if you want to check in and make sure that even though you're feeling good, is everything really good? I mean, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that you had any overt really big health complaints when we ran that first test. Um, and no, I think that was part of why it caught you so off guard. Yeah, I was really shocked. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, most people, you know, kind of identify me as a, someone who's really committed to doing a healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And if someone even like me can have so many problems really <laughs> unseen <laughs> going under the, mm -hmm. underneath the rug, you know, then there's a, there's a good possibility that something might be going on for you too. So it doesn't hurt to check. I mean, obviously there's a cost to it and some mm -hmm. time commitment, but I mean, if the, if the worst you get out of it is a confirmation of what you're doing is right, then, you know, great. You mm -hmm. didn't miss anything, but it could really save you lots of grief and pain and needless suffering in the future just by proactively addressing these, uh, these problems. Yeah. And if you, especially if you're someone who finds yourself really struggling with food and supplementation, um, then doing these types of tests will really add a lot of value. I mean, supplements are not inexpensive. Eating a specialized diet is, can be socially isolating and mm -hmm. brings all sorts of other issues. Um, and, and too many people are just, food has become the enemy for them because they can't figure out what they'll actually feel good on. And they don't realize that they don't necessarily have to navigate that road on their own through trial and error. You know, we can take targeted action with some of these steps and, and eliminate a lot of the guesswork and actually make progress and save a lot of money by testing and seeing what the right answer is for you rather than shifting through wrong after wrong answer after wrong answer after wrong answer. Yeah. So are there, um, any dramatic examples that you can think of off the top of your head uh, that you'd like to share? With where people have gone wrong or where the oat testing has? Well, anything that's a good example of the power of the analysis. Um, well, I have uh, one um, client that I've been working with for a little while uh, when we looked at his functional lab testing. Now, this is a, a little boy who is in kindergarten and um, he's had his share of health challenges even at age five. He's had a lot of dysbiosis in the gut. Um, there was a little bit of mold exposure. All in all, doing really well. His parents are really driven, but he was having some um, pretty significant emotional issues now that he is in kindergarten. And um, emotional outbursts, crying a lot, 
um, stuff that you might say, well, he, he's five, is it, is it that? But the parents felt very confident that this was above and beyond just his personality, that something was going on. So we looked at, at his testing and we um, realized that his omega th um, three to six ratio was really skewed. So, and he had been doing a really good quality cod liver oil for a while. And in particular, his AA to EPA ratio was way off. So we had him switch from a cod liver oil to a high EPA fish oil. And three weeks later, the mother uh, forwarded me an email from his teacher saying, I don't know what you're doing, but the change has been like night and day. Your son is engaged in school. He's emotionally calm. He's not afraid to ask for help or to participate. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And so they were doing the right things. They had him on a fish oil, but just by tweaking from the cod liver to the high EPA brought his body and his brain back into balance and he was able to perform as at his best self and level things out just by that little tweak. Without this testing, we would never have uncovered that piece. Yeah, and if, if it's fermenting fish oil, you could have saved his life. Um, oh, we, we had him off of the fermented long ago. <laughs> that, that was covered. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you would, but that's that's not a that's not one for human consumption, that's for sure. But uh, that's so so good to hear because this type of, I mean, the child had nothing to do with this. He was just it was a net. It's exactly what you would predict if you applied it to almost any other person. You know, they'd have that type of behavior. Yet he probably would have been self-aware and just uh, suffered the concept, the behavioral consequences of that for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many people are told, oh, well, he's just, he's a five-year-old boy, you know, he's just rambunctious, or he's having a rough time, or he's not transitioning well, maybe he should be held back and try kindergarten again next year. And the parents were on the brink of considering withdrawing him from school because of how extreme his emotional response had been. So now he is thriving in less than a month with just that little tweak. So that's, it doesn't always have to be 25, 30 supplements a day. Sometimes it's just that one little thing, getting the right thing in our bodies. So the right thing in the right body at the right time. Yeah. So important. So important. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, I mean, I really want to thank you for providing us some deep insights into how you assess people and can really offer them some hope for even if they've really been diligent and put a lot of time, effort, and energy into applying a healthy lifestyle and they're still not, still struggling with their health challenges, mm -hmm. you know, taking an individualized, customized analysis of their metabolism and their genes, of course, uh, mm -hmm. and evaluating that together can be a very powerful tool to help them and take control of their health. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I have yet to find a, a better method for helping to give people the right tools to help them be their best self and to really achieve both metabolic flexibility and, and homeostasis or balance within the body, which is what our systems are looking for. And if we, you know, if we have the right information, then we can make educated and, and informed choices that really support our own unique biochemistry, which may not even be the same at every point in our lives. So, you know, 
what we do as children is not necessarily the same thing we want to do as adults. What you were doing to recover the health of your gut is not necessarily the same things that you will do now that your gut is nice and balanced. So we can look at our evolving state. We live in such a toxic world. So we've got all of these um, external inputs as well. So remember that your, your bodies are constantly changing and growing and evolving and uh, we can use these functional tests to keep up with that and find what's right for ourselves at the point in our lives that we're at right now. All right. Well, thanks for everything you're doing. Thanks for all the help you sure. give me personally. And well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. All right. And we'll have the information how they can find you online if they're interested in, in uh, seeking a consultation uh, or finding, you know, the testing, the, certainly the Great Plains testing. So. And there are, there are other companies that do it too, but you know they seem Great Plains seems to be one of the better ones. Great Plains is excellent. Genova is a a good lab for that as well. We use them both, and um, Bob Software supports both of those tests as well. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah. The beautiful thing about this software, and with respect to the genomic analysis, I think we were mm -hmm. with Bob is that it gives you an idea of how you compare within the people he's evaluated, which is tens of thousands of people now. So, mm -hmm. you, just know, you know, because th that data is hard to come by. It is, and he has built one of the biggest databases. We've, there's over 35,000 genomes in it now. So, yeah. um, and it's growing at an exponential rate. So it's a, a really excellent tool for comparison. Yes, indeed, very powerful mm -hmm. software. All right, well, mm -hmm. thank you so much, Emily. Thank you. Appreciate all your help. All right, take care.